This is Millennially Speaking, a podcast about politics, pop culture, and everything in between. I'm David Latimer. This week, we're talking about Jeffrey Epstein's suicide, creative ways to eliminate school lunch debt, and what constitutes a racial slur. But first, I'd like to talk about Jeffrey Epstein, who we did discuss earlier on this show a few episodes ago. But in the last time we spoke, he actually died by suicide. So he was currently in jail at a federal facility in New York and was sort of awaiting his trial for sex trafficking. And he'd actually been on suicide watch for a while while he was there because it turned out he potentially tried to kill himself a few weeks prior. Um, there were reports that he ended up in the hospital because he had some sort of injury around his neck. He had uh, marks on his neck, so it looked like he had potentially tried to kill himself a few weeks prior. But what turned out to be, it was last Saturday, I believe, it was August 10th, uh, he did end up committing suicide in his cell. There's sort of a lot of questions that are being left unanswered, though. For those, who, First of all, for those who don't know who Jeffrey Epstein is, he is accused many, many years ago. He was actually, the reason we talked about him before uh, had to do with Alex Acosta, who's currently the labor secretary. But many years ago, he was sort of responsible for the earlier lenient sentence of Jeffrey Epstein, where... For a very similar crime, he was only given about 13 months, I believe it was, in prison, and he was given uh, sort of a work entitlement that basically he could leave jail or leave prison six days of the week and not actually have to stay in, and that sort of was a question of who you are and status and money and what rights you're given over others because of your status and, and questioning his actual position as labor secretary, but... What we're dealing with now is different charges of sex trafficking, and based on these particular charges that he was going to be bringing up, it was looking very likely like he would not ever leave prison. Uh, He's not old. I believe he's in his 60s, something like that. He was in his 60s, but it was looking very likely that if convicted on all charges that were presented, he would never leave prison in his lifetime. But the interesting thing is... There were, in his recent, I believe it was a deposition or something given to a court, that he actually implicated several uh, high-up important people, including a former governor and some other some other high-up officials, uh, in his sex trafficking work. So, uh, there's, there's definitely a lot of questions as to, and some pretty interesting conspiracy theories that are coming out now, post his death. And one of the things that a lot of people were sort of pointing out is that when he was found, people were not, uh, or the the news media or those who were reporting from that corrections facility didn't say specifically he was found with something around his neck, he was found, you know, hung, whatever the the proper terms are for someone who has hanged themselves, they weren't saying those things. So there was definitely some questions early on as to you know, did he even kill himself via being hanged? Like, was that even the the first thought? And there has been an autopsy, and it was an independent autopsy with a, a second person sort of on standby watching and basically sort of confirming everything that was said. And it was confirmed he had several broken bones in his neck, which all indicate that he did indeed hang himself. 
but there's still the question of why was it not reported in that way? And and potentially it was just something that was overlooked. Maybe it wasn't, it didn't have actually anything to do with his death, but there's still that question out there, especially because he's implicated or potentially implicated several high up important people. So there was definitely that sort of a question there. His suicide also has brought up a lot of questions of treatment in jails. So the difference between jails and prisons is that jails are your sort of your holding area where you're awaiting trial, whereas prison is you've been sentenced, here is where you're going to be spending your time for the next however long you've been sentenced for. And this particular correctional facility is a federal facility in New York City or in New York, and so so it does actually come under the jurisdiction of William Barr, the Attorney General, and there's some questions as to how well this facility was being run. So there's been allegations of understaffing, of overworking the staff that they have, of um, neglect and poor treatment of the inmates. And this sort of brings into question, well, how is it possible that someone that is, you know, of such notoriety ends up committing suicide in jail? Because there was also, he, like I said, he was on suicide watch at one point, but several days before his death, he was taken off suicide watch. So there's the question of, well, why did that happen? You know, if he was such a threat and, and before he was even, you know, put into jail, there were definite signs that he would either flee the country or he was sort of a flight risk, which is why they put him in jail. And that's why he was sort of, um, he was held there because it looked like he could flee. So when, when you have someone like that that is sort of looking for an escape and obviously had already potentially tried to commit suicide earlier in his stay, you need to be monitored all the time. And in this case, it looks like he had a bunkmate who was taken out of his cell for a little bit for some scheduled appointment. Uh, we're not sure what that was, but nonetheless, he was removed. His cellmate was removed, and it was potentially during that time he wasn't being monitored. And there's also reports that, you know, he was apparently supposed to be monitored or checked in on, I think it was every half hour, but that the guards that were there were sort of fudging records and, you know, they're supposed to be like a, basically like a check off, like, yes, I did do this and I did see Jeffrey Epstein and he's fine or whoever is in the cell, like they're fine that they were sort of forging those documents and not actually doing what they were supposed to do. And it does bring you to think, well, what is going on at that facility and how is it being run? And because, you know, people in jail, you know, people who are awaiting trial, they're still human beings, right? So even if they are criminals, even if they are suspected criminals or things like that, you don't treat them like garbage, right? You need to still do and follow all the procedures that have been given to ensure that they are safe. And even someone like Jeffrey Epstein, and and I had been thinking about this for a while, that, you know, you hear a lot of times that people who are convicted of either child abuse, child sex abuse, things like that, you know, sex trafficking like this, you hear that they end up dying in prison either from, you know, suicide or some kind of attack from other inmates. So I had been thinking potentially this could happen for a while, but you know, I wasn't sure what was going to happen or if it if it was just an unfounded thought, but there's still a question of 
who else could potentially be implicated in this. And there's been a lot of sort of on both sides bipartisan of, yes, continue the investigation and let's find out what we can find out. Because just after his death, there was a search of his sort of private island and this was rumored to be sort of his getaway for his sex trafficking. So that's been searched. It turns out that island was probably most likely going to be searched regardless. Um, the the search warrant for that, it takes a little bit of time for that to happen. So that was probably in the works for some time. It just so happened to be after his death. But there's, there's definitely some things that they're going to be looking into. And Bill Barr has said that the investigation will continue, which is good because the death of your the person that you're trying to convict, that doesn't necessarily put an end to that. It puts an end to the criminal case against him because he's no longer alive, but there is definitely more justice to be served. And this becomes sort of a civil matter now because he does have a large estate. So while that can't, you know, fix the problem and it can't get justice in that way, you can still go after this millions and millions and millions of dollars that this man has been able to hold on to because he's been protected potentially by many powerful people. So there's definitely a lot of things that need to be answered here. And there's definitely a lot of problems that need to be addressed, whether it's in that particular prison or, you know, or in that particular jail or jails sort of all over the country about how we treat those who are awaiting trial. But I, I just would like to see where this actually ends up. What I'd like to talk about now is lunch debt in schools. So for those who don't know or haven't been in school in a long time, what I'm talking about is when you go to school, when you go to lunch at school, uh, and you go to buy your lunch, you either give them money or you have money in some sort of account that your parents have set up for you at the school, and that's how you pay for your lunch. Well, sometimes kids don't have enough in their account or they don't bring money with them, but they still need food. So what the schools will do is they will charge it to your account and you will incur some kind of a debt. Well, over the years, many school districts have been complaining that the debts from school lunch are getting so large that they need to do something about that. So one school district, this is actually the Cherry Hill School District here in Jersey, they have uh, $14,000, over $14,000 in debt with only 343 students in that school district. And that's a big problem. Obviously, that's if if lunch is being charged, if you have to buy your lunch, you need to pay that, right? So nothing is free. Your your lunch can't just be free. So somebody has to pay for it, and that's how you pay for it. Is you either put money in the account ahead of time or you give money there. So the school is owed money, they need to do something about it. Well, this school district is actually looking at some very unorthodox methods. We've heard about school districts doing some things in the past, but this is what Cherry Hill has decided to do, or at least they're what they're proposing. They've said that after your first $10 in debt, the lunch will be changed to tuna fish. So their reasoning is many kids and many, many school districts will change it to just a peanut butter and jelly. You know, instead of a hot meal, any of the hot meal offerings, you'll only be given like a cold sandwich, like a peanut butter and jelly. Well, what their reasoning is, is that switching to a peanut butter and jelly, many kids will gladly take a peanut butter and jelly and won't do anything about the the lunch debt. So switching to a tuna fish is very sort of obvious and it's it's sort of a smelly meal and it's it's different, it stands out. So that's their goal with that. 
then after $20, they will get no lunch at all until their debt is paid. So, I definitely have some issues with this. I have some major issues with how they are proposing this. And it's hard to know exactly what the right thing to do is, because on one hand, you don't want to blame the kids because they're obviously not the ones with the income. It's the parents that are, you know, in charge of paying for lunch and making sure their kid has money. So it's sort of on them to do that, and you really don't want to punish the kids. But the only way to get the parents' attention might be to do something that'll affect their kids, you know? But the idea of what people are calling lunch shaming, which is to give them something that stands out, so a tuna fish sandwich would be something that stands out as you don't have money to pay for your lunch, so here is this meal that only you would be getting. There have been some other cases, some other school districts have done things like you get, like I said, a a different kind of a cold meal that no one else gets, or they even have like sort of stickers like a, you know, you owe lunch or something that you have to take home and you sort of wear it for lunch. That way people know. And that's not right because, like I said, you don't want to penalize the kid and make them feel ostracized for not being able to pay for lunch because, again, that's not their fault. But how do you then cause some sort of, I don't know, get the parents' attention? How do you get them to actually pay off the debt? I think you need to, there's some policies that some school districts use where if you have any kind of school debt, there's certain things that you can't participate in. So I know a lot of times, like if you're getting ready to graduate from high school and you have any kind of debt there, whether it's from the library or from school lunches or really anything that you owe the school money from, from your time being there, if you don't pay that off by your time of graduation, then you can't participate in the commencement ceremony, like the actual walking with the cap and gown. You still get to graduate, obviously. They can't prevent you from doing that if you've completed all the requirements to graduate, but they can prevent you from participating in certain activities. So other things have been like, you know, field day for younger kids, the sort of outdoor activity playing day towards the end of the school year. You can't participate in that. Other schools, you can't participate in certain trips that they go on or other kinds of extracurricular activities. I know at my school, my high school, they used to bar you from doing sort of the the really all of the extracurriculars but like the musical and the play and things like that where you know if you owe money or if you have a certain number of really whatever it is that they're trying to penalize you for absences or suspensions or things like that you can't do certain activities and again that's sort of punishing the kid for something that the parent did i don't really know if you don't punish the kid if you don't have some sort of policy that affects the kid what will get the parent's attention then And I don't really think there's a simple answer to that because the parents can ignore letters. The parents can ignore things that are sent to them to get their attention. And the only really way to affect them is to affect their kids. So in my opinion, I think there is a way to do that. And there is a way to get the parents' attention through the kids. And I think that sort of the barring of activities is the right thing to do. But, you know, barring them from food or from proper food, I don't think that's right. And again, I think there's some people that are freaking out about the giving them a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or giving them a tuna fish sandwich. I don't think that's right. The sort of the some of the outrage that are coming from that particular thing, you know, set aside the idea that it's lunch shaming. But the idea that giving them that is somehow not good enough for food. You should see some of the school lunches that are given that 
or, or what the kids actually eat in their school lunch because getting a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or getting a tuna fish sandwich is plenty of nutrition compared to some of the other things that the kids are eating that are just sent from home even. So saying that that is somehow not good enough for their nutrition for one meal, I don't think that's fair. You also have the issue of if it's parents that can't afford lunch, well, potentially they also can't, you know, maybe they are food insecure at home. So the the school lunch, the idea is that that really is the one place that kids can be certain that they are going to get a good meal. They are going to be given the foods and the things that they need to succeed in school and not let sort of the wealth gap or income inequality at home potentially affect them any more than that's already sort of affecting them in life in general. So again, I don't really know what the solution is. There are programs out there for free and reduced lunch. There are federal programs for that and you can sign up for them. Sometimes parents don't get the information that they need, but if that's something that you need, then reach out and take care of that. Because even if you end up still with lunch debt, you'll have reduced lunch debt. You know, sometimes they're going these over $2 meals, now they're only 40 cents if you have reduced lunch. So if you qualify for that, you need to look up and look into that and actually apply for it because that is super critical to not getting so far behind and so in debt with these schools that at that point it becomes like paying off a credit card. It becomes so expensive and now instead of it hurting you, it's hurting your kid. So I think doing those sort of Non-traditional meals is not necessarily a wrong thing. They need to be given food. I think any school that says that you can't have any food, I think that's insane. I don't think any school should be doing that. I think if you have some kind of a non-regular meal, I think it should still be put into your debt because you are getting food, so you have to then pay for that at some point. But Or, or potentially you could have a taxpayer-funded lunch program for those who are beyond a certain point or in debt to a certain point that that is no longer adding to their debt because that sort of digs you deeper into a hole. I don't know. I don't know if that's the right solution, but I know that giving them nothing is not right. So lastly, what I wanted to talk about is Chris Cuomo. If you hadn't heard recently over, I believe it was during the week, this past week, He was confronted by somebody while he was just sort of out and about, and he was getting into a sort of a confrontation with this guy, and he ended up calling him Fredo, which is a reference to a character from The Godfather. Obviously, that's a very Italian-American kind of a movie. It's That's what the characters are based on. And Chris Cuomo, who is a CNN anchor, he was getting very... Uh, I would say a little bit angry and getting very upfront with this guy. And he was calling him, he was saying some, some bad words. He was, he was cursing at him. He was calling him names and things like that. And after this confrontation, he sort of talked about it and said that it's using that slur, using Fredo is similar to the N word or that it's like the N word for Italian Americans. And there's been a lot of talk about that. There's been a lot of controversy surrounding that particular statement. I have a lot of thoughts about this. First of all, we and we've been through this kind of thing before where we try to compare things to the N-word. If you can say the word but not say the N-word, you know which one is worse and you know which one is not like the other. 
because you can actually say out loud the one word, but not the other. And it's not just because of who you are or what context it is. If anyone says the actual word for the N-word, that that's going to be an issue with certain people. Whereas if you say Fredo, referring to a character from The Godfather, it has nothing to do with generations of intolerance and enslavement and just a, it's a completely different thing. So I hate when any time somebody tries to compare something to the N-word because there just is nothing that is comparable. And it's not just because of the historical context of it, because that's obviously bad enough of using that word to belittle and and talk down to a, a particular race of people, but it also in today's society, just of how that word is used in vernacular for within the, the black community and outside of the black community, that that word has a, a context that is only okay for certain people, and only certain people think it's okay, too, because you'll get uh, African Americans who are fine with using that word in their own group, in their own context, they're able to use it, it sort of um, takes away the sting of the word, they've sort of, I think they try to reclaim the word and make it their own again, instead of basically pointing fun at the word, that you think that you're belittling us, but now we have reclaimed it and we're now using it on our own. And then there's also some that don't like to use it at all because of that context that it used to have, so it's sort of just don't use that word at all. But regardless, that's not my place to say what's right or wrong, because that's coming from somebody else who, as a white person, as a white male, I have no idea what a word like that would have and, and how that would make me feel. There is no equivalent to that word for someone like me. And that's why the to make that argument that it somehow is at all similar is false. Of course, there's plenty of other racial slurs that people have used for different ethnicities and different kinds of people in the world, but that one specifically, and really any of them directed at, I believe, at, at Italian Americans, it just doesn't have the exact same or anything similar to that context. But on the other hand, I am not a Chris Cuomo fan. I'm not a Chris Cuomo advocate. I don't watch Chris Cuomo. Uh, it, I'm not a fan of him, but I do stand by what some of the other uh, conservative talk people have said, people like Sean Hannity, and even, I believe, Tommy Lahren said it too, that nobody should be bombarded out in public, and this sort of political indecency that's happening in public has to stop. So you have, in the past, we've heard of people in either the Trump White House or just conservative talk people, conservative senators, people from the House, all of that are just sort of out and about. I think one of them was Sarah Sanders, the former press secretary for the White House. She was just out and about, and she was basically shouted out of whatever establishment she was in. And th this has been happening a lot lately. But a lot of conservative talk people have said, that's unacceptable. It doesn't matter what your political beliefs are. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're shouted out of public for, for doing something that has nothing to do with politics or has nothing to do with the context in which you're being shouted down for, it just it's political incivility and indecency. And we can have political disagreements and we can have 
you know, discussions, but these are people who are just sort of living their lives. They're people who are just out and about. It's not right to just shout them down just because they're existing. You know, you can have these big disagreements, especially with people from the Trump administration. If you want to have major disagreements with them, that's fine. But to out of context of their work, just to attack them when especially when it's someone who has no say on a policy or has no especially somebody like Sarah Sanders, who is just out there speaking on behalf of the president. She's not making policy decisions. She's not she doesn't really get the opportunity to say whether she agrees or disagrees with a Trump policy. So to just shout her down, again, that seems like sort of misdirected, misguided anger. Um, I think Chris Cuomo is a little bit different because of the way he reacted. He did sort of become aggressive with the person and get a little agitated, which does make me lose a little bit of sympathy. But at the same time, can you blame him? You know, you're you're just out in public and somebody starts calling you names. You kind of... And, and knowing... Chris Cuomo's personality, he is definitely a more gruff kind of a person and sort of a rough personality. He's got a rough personality. And and so does his brother, Andrew Cuomo. He's the governor of New York. So they, they both have this sort of gruff outer exterior, and that's sort of just how they talk. But again, political incivility in, in public, I think it's just not right to just to do that thing, even though Chris Cuomo's points were definitely not correct. And I'm reading a couple of stories. It turns out even those who are at CNN are sort of, they're embarrassed by what happened, by the his sort of blow up. And I, I kind of understand that because it's drawing attention to CNN in a way that they don't really need to, you know, because CNN already has the eye of the president on them, even when they're not really doing anything. So this just got, and of course, Trump tweeted about it, about the incident and about the use of the term Fredo. I don't know. I think Chris Cuomo just blew it out of proportion, and I think CNN is just trying to bury it because it really is not something that they want to be dealing with right now. And that's all for this edition of Millennially Speaking. I'm David Latimer. Be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you like this podcast, share us with your friends. We're also on Instagram at millennially underscore speaking. Thanks for listening.